Hello and welcome to episode 119 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Shai Davidi. Shai is a baseball columnist for Sportsnet in Toronto. He's also the author of the book, The Big 50, The Men and Moments That Made the Toronto Blue Jays. Shai, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. My pleasure, Ross. Well, I ask everyone this right at the top of the show. Tell me what initially got you into baseball in the first place. Well, I've got to go back a long ways. Uh, I think I've, there's summer of, I believe it was 1985, when I really fell in love with the Blue Jays and baseball. I was at a, a summer camp. Uh, I hadn't really played much. Uh, my parents were Israeli immigrants. Uh, they had no familiarity with the game. We didn't really grow up uh, with it. Uh, but I was at a sports camp. We played it. I, the game grabbed a hold of me, and uh, the Blue Jays started getting good just at that time. They ended up winning their first American League East Championship that summer. So there was a bit of a perfect storm, and uh, I've loved the game ever since. That's around the same time that I started to get into baseball, and that was also aided by the explosion of baseball cards at the time. Was that as big in Toronto and in Canada? It was. I didn't get into baseball cards. The first set I remember collecting uh, really collecting was the 1988 Donruss. That was my first full set that I completed. Uh, and you know, it was, uh, it got pretty big for the next few, several years in Toronto. Actually, there was uh, there was one store called sluggers, uh, in the North of the city that was sort of a, a Mecca for all the baseball card collectors. And, and yeah, it, it really blew up. Uh, so 88 was when, at least for me, uh, you know, that was big. Uh, hockey cards were big at the time uh, as well. Uh, probably a little bit bigger in, in Toronto at least. Uh, but they, the market really picked up. And then baseball cards, the value uh, for them, uh, even up in Toronto, like was always, always exceeded that of hockey cards, which uh, I don't really know why. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it was uh, it became really huge when the, the Rogers Center Skydome then now the Rogers Center opened up in 1989. Uh, there was this fabulous walk walkway between the sub the nearest subway station and and the stadium, and there were all these stores that opened up inside, and uh, that Slugger store opened up a satellite uh, a satellite location in that walkway. Uh, and it was in business until, until really, until the attendance dipped after the, the World Series years following the strike. The Blue Jays just had a lot of excitement recently with the call-up of Vlad Guerrero Jr. He's really one of the most hyped prospects ever, and there was a lot of excitement about his debut. He's still only 20 years old, and I think a lot is being put on him. He has struggled in a very small sample size here, but has his early struggles at all diminished any of the excitement around him? No, not at all. And If anything, it's just increased the anticipation for that first home run, that first sort of signature moment. Uh, but he has been a subject of fascination uh, ever since he signed, really, in the summer of 2015. And as he's torn up the minor leagues on his way up the ladder, you know, it's only increased and increased. And then you couple that with the fact that the Blue Jays went from a, a postseason club to one that's rebuilding. And he's really seen as the, the bridge for the future. And so you can understand why in Toronto there's been an incredible amount of fascination with him. Uh, then, you know, you factor in as well that he's the son of Vladimir Guerrero, of that Vladimir Guerrero, the Hall of Famer, 
and and the cachet that that carries uh, in the Dominican Republic and the Latin baseball world, uh, you know, he's really attracted such a wide swath of interest that it's been remarkable to watch. What are the expectations for him this year and for the next five, six years that the team has under control with him? Do you hear peak Miguel Cabrera? I think MLB.com did a piece looking at some of the projection systems over the first 10 years in the majors, and they compared him to Eddie Matthews. So these are some real Hall of Fame names he's being compared to. Are those realistically the expectations there as well? I, I think that depends on, on who you're asking. If you're saying Jasmine the fans, I mean, yeah, I mean, he's going to be Mike Trout Jr., right? So that, uh, that, that that's clearly a lot to put on the kid. I think the Blue Jays, they expect him to be a, 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 an all-star type of player, but they've really worked hard to try and manage expectations, at, at least publicly. And I think the way that, you know, Ross Atkins put it, was very intriguing when uh, when Vimer Guerrero Jr. made his debut last week. He said essentially that what their expectation of, of him was for him to follow the same process as a player that he did in the minor leagues, and that if he did that, then he would be able to really leverage his talent and, and let that come through, which I thought was an interesting, interesting way to just tell people, hey, just calm down and let him be and he'll grow into what he's going to grow into. And that being said, you know, the, the way the Blue Jays have structured this rebuild, the way the Blue Jays are preparing for the future, I mean, they're expecting him to be a cornerstone of this franchise. So, you know, exactly what that looks like, you know, I think that will, that will play out ultimately. But the expectations are, are ridiculously high for, for this 20-year-old. Obviously, Vlad Jr. came into the season as the best prospect in baseball. He was crushing in the minors. I expect him to hit and hit pretty soon in the majors as well. But there are lots of other prospects seemingly on the way coming this year, later this year, or next year. And a lot of them are second-generation players. You have Kevin Biggio, of course, the son of Craig Biggio, Bo Bichette, the son of Dante Bichette, and even Jeff Conine's son is in the system as well. Is that a coincidence, or is Bloodline's a family history of, of ballplayers, is that something that they've targeted in the draft or an international signing? They haven't directly targeted it, but the Blue Jays do like it. They believe that there's something to growing up in the environment and understanding some of the expectations that come with being a major league player. And, and in a sense, you know... Maybe this is a bit strong, but you know the major leagues are, are are somewhat demystified for them because it was there throughout their childhood. So you know the, the Blue Jays haven't really gone out of their way. You know the the signing of Vladimir Guerrero Jr. was done by the Alex Anthopoulos regime, uh, and then the once once Ross Atkins and Mark Shapiro and, and and that regime came into place, you know they, they've certainly made a habit of of drafting and acquiring. Uh, some second-generation players, uh, including the ones you mentioned. So uh, it, it has been an interesting trend, definitely one that's been noted. Uh, but you know, to say that there's a concerted effort to seek those guys out, uh, I, I don't think that's the case. Those guys just happen to end up higher up on their list. Bichette had a great spring training. Then he got injured in early season play, in, in minor league play. What's his status? Is he expected to get a major league promotion this year? Or given the injury, will they hold him back until next May 1st, coincidentally, uh, or April 26th, whatever it is, to delay that service time? 
Well, my expectation all along was they would do that. And the other factor in that is that they can stagger the future free agencies of Guerrero and Bichette, so they both don't come up in the same year. Uh, but they're the way that he performed during spring training and uh, to a degree early season in Buffalo had some people thinking that he might force their hand earlier and make that impossible for, for the Blue Jays this season. But now that he's broken his hand, you know, that's going to put a real wrinkle in things. Uh, he's uh, is going to be immobilized for the next couple of weeks and he's going to be reevaluated to see how much healing has been done. Uh, this possibility that he, maybe he gets back for June, but maybe it's not till July until he's back. Uh, and that, that's really going to truncate his year and ultimately may, may just prevent him from having enough time to, to force the Blue Jays into a decision. So, so that was certainly a disappointing piece of news uh, because he's, he was a really exciting player. You mentioned the great spring. And as much as it was impressive with the bat, it was really the defense, uh, at least to me, where, where he stuck out. And there was a lot of conversation, a lot of chatter over the past few years uh, over whether he's going to be able to stick in the big leagues as a shortstop, but he certainly looked like a big league shortstop during spring training, and and even in the game in Montreal, one of the exhibition games in Montreal, he made a, a, a tremendous athletic play on uh, Orlando Arcia chopper, uh, you know, just just really electric, fast, twitchy kind of movements that that made you think that he he's got a chance to be a plus defender, a shortstop in the big leagues. Ronald Acuna signed a $100 million extension that bought out his a couple free agent years, really, until the age 30. Uh, do you think that the Blue Jays have already considered offering Vlad Jr. something similar? I'm sure internally they, they've kicked that around, but I don't think that that's something that's gone, uh, that there's been much discussion with, with Vladimir Guerrero Jr.'s camp. And yeah, I think to a degree the, the situations between Guerrero and Acuna are a little bit different uh, from the player side uh, because Guerrero got uh, a very generous signing bonus at $3.9 million. Uh, his dad obviously did well throughout his career. I don't think there's financial pressure or a need to to try and max out on dollar on a, on a commitment right now uh, and, and get some stability. Uh, I, I think Guerrero just strikes me as someone with the, the type of self-belief that would rather go year to year and see if he can really max out the dollars in that way. Um, but I also feel that the Blue Jays would probably want to see some more at the big league level before they, they went down that road. Uh, you know, the, this is a team that, that has some financial resources and doesn't have many commitments on the books. You know, when, when push comes to shove, if Vladimir Guerrero Jr. needs to get paid, uh, they'll certainly have the ability to pay him. Lastly, on the bloodlines, I guess, is Kevin Biggio, who's been playing really well so far in minor league play. Is he expected to get a promotion at some point this year? My, my sense was that he was going to find his way to the big leagues uh, at some point this year. And, and really right now, all he's waiting for is the end opportunity. Is, the, is that an injury? Is that a trade? Uh, in the interim, he's been moving around the diamond at AAA Buffalo, trying to find all the different ways he can get into a lineup. Uh, the Blue Jays really, really like the positional flexibility uh, angle of players. They want to try to build as much of it as they can. You know, they're dealing with Brendan Drury up in the majors right now. So uh, for him, I think it, it's really just an opening that he has to wait for. And in the interim, he keeps on performing and keeps on showing people that 
he, uh, he he's ready and, and is deserving of an opportunity. We are realistically not that far away from the Blue Jays being a contender. Those Batista-led teams when they were in the ALCS and those were, you know, the bat flip game and, and the crowd just being so electric and so crazy. But attendance this year is down 33%. And I find that interesting because this isn't, at least it doesn't appear to be as deep a rebuild as the Cubs and the Astros went through. They're not that bad, and they still have, look, they just brought Vlad up. There's exciting things on the way, but fans have really turned away during this process. Is the hope that they'll just get good and come back? Is it there are a little bit of fair weather things here? What's going on with the attendance drop? It's been very jarring. There was a game against the Baltimore Orioles in the uh, first week or so of the season, and the Blue Jays had it, I believe, was roughly 10,400, and it was only uh, 130 fans away from the all-time low attendance uh, for a game at the Rogers Center. So it was uh, it was a, a really really shocking sight. Uh, because we, we aren't that far removed from you know 48,000 every night, and seasons of three million plus, and just absolute obsession with the Blue Jays. It, I mean, it disappeared so quickly, which I think if you're running the team is something that you have to be worried about. Because you know when the Blue Jays lost it after the World Series years, it took a long, long time for for people to come back and get reengaged, and there was so much energy around the ballpark. There was so much fervor for the club. Uh, you know, it was it was an asset that, you know, twenty nine other teams uh, are are all seeking to have. And and I think that there are a few things, you know, there there was a lot of attachment to the fifteen, sixteen teams and then those players started moving off and they weren't replaced by players similar similar levels. So they were it was easy for fans to pine for the players that, that left. And then, you know, I think that just out of circumstance and because they've had to make tough decisions, uh, the new regime doesn't have a lot of cachet with at least segments of the fan base uh, because they're, they're building slowly, conservatively, carefully, uh, and that's not really sexy to people when you're asking them to spend their money. So I, I think those are two factors that have really impacted attendance and how whether it comes back i mean we'll see you know, there was a, a the, the walk-up for vladimir Guerrero jr's first game was something like seven eight thousand fans so so obviously that was uh, pretty electric but is that going to sustain itself you know history suggests that one player doesn't drive attendance in a major way so you know i think this is going to be something that's closely watched um whether or not the Blue Jays can reconnect with fans uh, the way that they did in, in 15, 16, even 17. Um, and, and the answer to that, I, I don't think it's clear. You know, TV numbers are still good. The people are still watching them. But it's, it's a different animal to ask people to spend their, spend their money and come out to the ballpark. Uh, and right now, you know, with the Toronto Raptors in a, in a good playoff run, the, the Maple Leafs were, were in the postseason, had legitimate aspirations before they were eliminated. I mean, it's a, it's a tough sporting environment for, for them to make their market. Yeah, and fans that don't show up when the team is bad, like that city then gets a bad rap as fair-weather fans. And I remember the Braves got that when they were great, and they, they still weren't even showing up to playoff games. But... I actually think it's smart consumerism. I mean, if the team is blatantly rebuilding and not trying to win, fans don't have to go. 
they're doing the right thing as long as they come back. And that's the downside is, you know, it's a delicate balance between fans and owners and all the money flowing. Uh, so much of it has been directed towards TV. But this is a horrible look for Major League Baseball. My wife was home the other day, and we put a game on, and she's just like, there's no one at these games. It is it is really bad to see. It's painful in some cases. We just saw the White Sox and the Orioles, I think, yesterday. It looked like they were playing in front of eight people who were all reporters. Yeah, I mean, there was a, a Kansas City Tampa game that uh, was, was similarly like that. And, look, I, mean, I totally get it from fan perspective, you know, if you're a fan, you're saying, hey, you're not going to sign anybody that, that's of interest to me. Uh, you know, if you're not going to spend the money, why should I spend the money? And the Blue Jays are paying a lot of money for, for players to, to be on other teams this year uh, as opposed to, to playing for themselves. So, you know, that's, uh, that's certainly something that is frustrating the fans. And, and then you look at the, the way that the Blue Jays handled themselves in free agency. I mean, they made some clever ads. You know, uh, Matt Shoemaker was a clever signing, and he was performing tremendously until he was injured. Uh, and, and Freddie Galvis has been a, a great pickup. But it's the $4.5 million that they're spending on him. That was their, their biggest splurge in free agency. Yeah, that's not really a way to energize your fan base or to engage them because you know, the off-season signings tend to be what drives interest. So, uh, you know, I, I do think there's an element of smart consumerism. Uh, there's an element of, you know, just show me the money, show me the commitment. Uh, and then, understandably, you have some people who are like, you know, I don't want to live through this. I mean, rebuilds are hard. Uh, the Blue Jays have never stripped down the way that they stripped down. Uh, over the past year, year and a half, you know, so this is new for the Blue Jays fan base, and you know, to to this point, uh, you know, a certain portion of them have spoken with their wallets by saying, you know, call me back when you're ready. Ken Rosenthal reported yesterday that the Blue Jays are actively trying to deal Marcus Stroman, Aaron Sanchez, Justin Smoke. I'd have to imagine that Ken Giles is in that group as well. They're seemingly not done, and do you think that the attendance drop will prevent them from shopping these guys? Just seeing some of the extensions that signed for, frankly, pitchers who were better than Marcus Stroman or Aaron Sanchez, it seems like they could lock those guys up for rather rather affordable contracts. I don't see why Marcus Stroman, for example, can't be part of the next generation of great Blue Jays teams with Vlad Guerrero. I don't see why they have to deal him as part of this. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, this is a point that, that I've made a number of times is that you, know, you you can end up trading these guys and then spending the next three or four years trying to recreate them. And, you know, good pitching is hard to get. Uh, you know, I think for, for different reasons, it's uh, an extension. Uh, we'll start with Sanchez in particular. I think that's a, a really tricky one because you have a guy who's coming off basically two years of injuries. Uh, he's had one absolutely elite season as a starter of 2016 when he won the ERA title and was arguably one of the best pitchers in the American league, uh, if not the best, you know, that, how do you extend that? How do you find that sweet spot between, you know, surrendered upside on, on the player end and financial commitment on the team end that that gets, that gets both sides satisfied. You know, I, I don't think that one, I think that one becomes a bit more complicated with Marcus Stroman. You know, I think the the middle ground is a little easier to find. The the number is probably a little bit more 
a little bit more, a little easier to, to, to land at. It, it just becomes a matter of, do you believe in him? And, and look, I think the Blue Jays are in a position where, you know, they want to try to get as many players as possible that are going to time with, with the core. And so if you want to sort of kick the can down the road and, and make everyone, uh, or just add pieces that are going to be young and, and age with that group, you, you, you wait until the trade deadline to explore what you're going to get. You know, this is the, the time to max out on those players is going to be this trade deadline. You know, once if the Blue Jays keep Marcus Stroman, Aaron Sanchez, Ken Giles beyond July 31st, their value is only going to decrease on the trade market, regardless of how they perform. So, you know, the, I think that they probably explore what uh, where what they can get on the market, how the, whether that makes sense for them. Uh, and then they circle back on the extension as well. And Marcus Stroman has been very, very public in his desire to, to stay in Toronto, uh, but he's going to want to be paid for that. And, and the Blue Jays have, as I mentioned before, virtually no commitments in the future. They've got money in Grichuk and Lotus Gurriel Jr., and, and that's it. You know, so they've got to decide who they're spending their money on. And uh, you know, those guys, those guys make some sense, but there isn't a, there isn't a lot of free agency. And sometimes the devil you know is better than the devil you don't. Uh, but at this point, there's no traction on an extension. Uh, there, I, I've been told there, there's nothing happening on the trade front right now. Uh, so I think all this is is still has to play out a little bit. How far away, realistically, do you think they are from contention, especially considering the two lurking behemoths in the division that are always there? Yeah, it's a great question. And I've spent a lot of time thinking about this in, in the last week, week and a half or so, and, and just talking to different people. And ultimately, you know, the pitching isn't just there yet, right? It's a... Uh, You've got you've got Stroman, you've got Sanchez, and then you know is Thornton a starter or does he end up a bullpen guy? You know how far away is is Nate Pearson, and you know he in all likelihood if he continues to develop this year and and then next year maybe he can get to 140 innings. Is that enough to help you as a contending club? You know the, some of their other pitching prospects, John Reed Foley, uh, you know, uh, T.J. Zoic. Uh, uh, Hector Perez, Patrick Murphy, you know, they, they haven't made major jumps for jump forwards this year and that's hurting them. So the, the question has been, and even, it's funny to say this, even though they they started yesterday as second in the America, uh, second in the major leagues in ERA uh, has been, where are they going to get the pitching? How are they going to produce the, the pitching that they need, uh, that they'll need to contend? And I, I just, I think right now you can see a potential timeline from a position player side, but it's harder to envision uh, a timeline on the pitching side that's that's going to allow them to, to contend in the next year or two. You're in Anaheim with the team. They're playing the Angels right now. And I'm curious what opposing players think of Mike Trout. Well, it's interesting. I went two for three against Marcus Stroman yesterday, including a bases loaded double uh, that knocked Stroman from the game is now eight for fifteen, I believe it is, in his career against Stroman. Uh, and, and I asked him, you know, when you know you're having a guy has uh, that kind of success against in his career, like, what kind of things do you do? And Stroman just said, "That's the best player in the game, uh, the best player ever," uh, in, in his opinion. And he said, "There's there aren't many holes to exploit. That whatever it is that you do, he seems to be able to counteract it." And he just it was almost. Uh, just appreciating it. 
saying, good, you know, there's not much you can do against him. The guy's just that good. Uh, and I think that's, that's just a universal appreciation of him. You know, he's, I, I mean, what doesn't he do? And uh, Trout seems to, I mean, he's against a lot of teams, but he's, uh, he's had a very productive career against the Blue Jays. He's tortured them uh, seemingly every time they, they meet. Uh, and he continues to do so. So I think there, there's a lot of admiration, uh, probably a little bit of frustration too. A bit of uh, hey, slow down and take it easy. You know, get some of your numbers against someone else for a change. Lastly, in non-Blue Jays related news, I wanted to ask you just about Larry Walker. He's entering his final year on the baseball writers ballot. His his last chance for the Hall of Fame with the writers, at least. He'll he probably will get in at some point via a veterans committee, but this is the last chance with the writers. I'm curious what you think this will mean for the people in Canada to have one of their own, Larry Walker, a very deserving player who played a significant chunk of his career with the Expos. What would it mean for him to get in? A, a, a ton. You know, he'd, just, he'd be just the, the second Canadian player joining Ferguson Jenkins. And, I, you know, for a lot of Canadians, we just can't understand why it hasn't happened you know it's it's unfair to penalize a guy just because he played at Coors Field you know the, you know the the geographic location isn't out of his control and uh, you know it was, I was talking to Jeff Francis uh you know about a year or so ago uh Canadian pitcher or his teammate or not his teammate they weren't on the Rockies at the same time but who followed him to the Rockies said you know nobody subtracts a run off my ERA for having to pitch at Coors Fields over all the years. So why is everybody taking, taking something, subtracting from Larry Walker's numbers, which I thought, you know, it's a fair point. And uh, I also think that the disparity in performance between home and road for him over his career isn't as pronounced as people make it out to be. Uh, and I think people forget what a dynamic player he was. So I think uh, for a lot of Canadian baseball fans, it would be an important piece of recognition uh, and I think the element that's probably lost in the discussion in the United States, and you know, I've, I've talked about this with some people who who disagree with uh, who disagree with me, but I think it's certainly worth consideration as a part of his legacy is is how important he was to the development and growth of baseball in Canada. You know, you talk to a generation of players that followed him coming out of British Columbia, where where Walker's from, and. They were all, he's, he was the guy that they looked to, and he was the guy that made them believe they can do it. Guys like uh, like Justin Morneau uh, in, in particular, but uh, uh, just an entire generation of kids who, who came out of British Columbia. He was the guy that, that they wanted to be uh, and the guy that made them feel that they could do it. So uh, he's someone who continues to give back to, to Canadian baseball. He works out, uh, he coaches with the Canadian Junior National Team. He's at... Uh, every event with, with the senior team, uh, he is embedded in the fabric of the game in Canada. And I think uh, because of that, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a wider impact that I think should be considered as part of his legacy. Uh, and it would mean a lot to a lot of people because uh, it would be a recognition of, of just how much Canada's grown in the game in recent years. You've been listening to Shai Davidi. Shai is a baseball columnist for Sportsnet in Toronto. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Shai Davidi. That's S-H-I-D-A-V-I-D-I. Shai, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. No problem, Rob.